It's great. Our, our new series on Isaiah, um, who's a prophet in the Old Testament, so a long time before Jesus. And in fact, we're starting, strangely enough, this morning on chapter 6, uh, where we first get to meet the person of Isaiah, um, at, rather than at chapter 1, which I think Dave might pick up next week. So we get to meet Isaiah. And this passage, if your house, heaven forbid, were burning down, and as things would have it, you can only save one chapter of the Bible... I would suggest to you that this is the chapter you should save, Isaiah chapter 6. Out of all the chapters in the whole of the Bible, this is the one to take with you. And as I was sitting this morning thinking, why do I love this passage so much? Why? What is it? Obviously, it's, it's old. It's like 700 years before Jesus. Why, why do I love it? And I think it's because every time I read it without fail, I sense something of who God is and what he has done for us and how we're changed. And I don't just read it and I don't just know it. It does something within me. So that's my prayer this morning. Let's just pray. Father God, as we come into your presence this morning, as we're reminded about who you are, just pray this morning that our hearts would be open for us to encounter you just as Isaiah encountered you. Lord, meet with us this morning and change us. We give you permission, at least I do, uh, to change me. Amen. So, Isaiah chapter 6, at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died. So, who is King Uzziah? What's his relevance? Anyway, he'd been king for a long time, King Uzziah. And if you think about last year, you'd say that's the year that Queen Elizabeth died. She'd been queen for 70 years. She'd seen a lot of things. The nation had changed a lot. And last year, the year that Queen Elizabeth died. Well, for Isaiah, King Uzziah was really important. He had started off, he'd reigned for 50 years, not quite as long as Queen Elizabeth. But he had had a really good start to his reign. He followed God and he expanded the kingdom. So it was good for them, not quite so good for the surrounding nations. But his kingdom expanded. He had a mighty army. Everything went really brilliantly well. And the fact that it went so well meant that Uzziah got really proud and arrogant. And so he went into the temple where he wasn't supposed to go, and he kind of thought he was above everything, and he could just step into the holy place and meet God. And that was his end. And I wonder whether Isaiah, who was the prophet to the king, whether that was a bit, he felt like that was a bit of a failure on his part. Because after all, it was the prophet's job to tell the king, you know, to keep the king on track. Um, and we can read about it in 2 Chronicles. Zechariah had kept the king on track. Isaiah, the prophet, had failed in keeping Uzziah on track. And Isaiah knew that that failure was actually a really big failure. And it was going to be the end of the kingdom of Judah and Israel eventually. That the beginning of the end of those kingdoms was happening. It was a really bad year for Isaiah. The year that King Uzziah died. So when you read that, you're not just reading, mm, you know, that's like, that's last year. This is, is a bad year. And I wonder about for us, like last year, this year, there's a lot of bad stuff, isn't there? You think like, oh, there's this crisis of um, cost of living crisis. Energy bills are so high. I mean, at the moment, the weather is so cold and you can't afford to put the heating on. And then there's wars. And when you look at the future, it can seem quite bleak, much as Isaiah's future looked really very bleak. So I think that there's even a little bit of a, a we can sympathize or empathize a bit with Isaiah in where we sit this morning. Are we in a year where King Uzziah died? Now what happens? 
Isaiah saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the light of his train filled the temple, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So Isaiah is reminded at that point of the right at the beginning of the chapter about the, the, the two thrones. There's an earthly throne, there's an earthly rulership, an earthly leadership, but there's also a heavenly throne. And he sees something of God on that heavenly throne. Let's keep reading. I'll put my glasses on so I don't make it up. Above him, above the throne that is, there were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Isaiah is transported to this place where he can see God on his throne and see these seraphim around him. It's the only place where seraphim are mentioned in the Old Testament. And then what? They're not angels. It's a big mistake to put everything in the angel category. Seraphim is a word that means burning ones, bright ones. Maybe it's also the word snake. It's something we can't quite imagine ourselves. Um, but they've got six wings and they're circling the throne. And Isaiah gets this picture of another reality. Um, I don't know if any of you have seen this film. Can you give me a wave if you've seen this film? A few of you. It's, it's quite a good film. It's the sense of, um, Dave and I took us three goes to watch it because it's got subtitles and if you're crocheting, it's quite hard to follow what's going on. But um, I might need to watch it again. But ba- the basic thing is that what where the premise is, that where we are, there's multiple other realities happening at the same time. And there's lots of other films on this theme at the moment, that there's a multiverse, that there's other dimensions going on. And um, there's kind of physicists talking about string theory who are researching it and CERN Collider trying to get particles for other dimensions through to our dimension. And it struck me because I've been thinking about other dimensions for a while now. And what I found surprising is that just as sort of science and physics and everything is thinking about other dimensions, Christians are losing sight of the other dimension. Christians are shrinking God down to being in a small box here on our earth, forgetting this heavenly dimension. And isn't that strange? As, As we stop, our eyes fall down to just what we can see around us. And yet there is, I believe, another dimension happening. But maybe physics isn't your thing. Um, Maybe daffodils are a little bit more down to earth. This is the kind of corner uh, by the road by our house. And that's how it looks now. The daffodils have gone. And all summer, they'll have disappeared. You won't know they're there. It's just grass. It gets mown. And all winter, it looks really bleak. And then in March, I'm literally astonished by the sight of those daffodils. They are astonishing. I don't know if anyone else has seen them. They're just a sea of daffodils. But most of the year, you can't see them. You forget about them. They're not there. They're just there. But they are there. Just because you can't see something, it doesn't mean it isn't there. It's not present. It can break through. So Isaiah's perspective lifts and he sees God on his throne. And I wonder, he mentions the seraphim, but I expect he could see angels, archangels, seraphim, cherubim, this heavenly picture. And what does he hear? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's a weird word, that holy, isn't it? And the fact that it's said three times, it's like holy to the power of three. Holy, 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 really, really holy. So holy. What does that word mean? 
And I think the best metaphor for holy is that of the sun. You've got the sun. It brings and sustains life. It's really hot. And to get anywhere near it, even though it's sort of the sphere of influence goes really beyond itself a long way. So it's like God, his holiness stretches a long way. It's unique. To be holy is to be separate, unique, bright, burning, and to have a massive effect on everything around you. And as Isaiah's perspective is changed, so the created order shakes, it says, the, at their voice, the, the um, doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And Isaiah sees a holy God, burning fire, things flying around it, and hearing, holy, holy, holy. And what happens? He's so suddenly, his perspective goes from God on his throne, isn't it amazing, to like, what am I doing here? I don't know if you've ever had a sort of a naked dream where you kind of, you're in work, you're in the office and you've forgotten to wear trousers. I don't know if that's that only me that happens to. And no one seems to notice, but you're there and you're like trying to like lean around things because you're out and about and you're in completely the wrong place. And you're totally out of location. Well, that is what happened to Isaiah. There he is. Why did Uzziah lose favor with God? He went into the temple. He took that place that he shouldn't have taken. That's where Isaiah is. He's found himself in this heavenly picture in the temple where he's not supposed to be. It's all happening out of his control. It's a disaster. He knows that to see the face of God is not survivable. He's in a non-survivable situation. So he goes from this glorious picture of God to the spotlight shining on him. And he says, woe to me, I cried. I am ruined For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the Lord, the King, the Lord Almighty. I think it's another reason why I love Isaiah, because I'm the sort of person who goes to have a lovely conversation with you. We'll talk about some deep stuff, and I'll go away, and I'll go, what did I say that for? That was a really stupid thing to say. And you try to take the words back. Maybe that's only me, but you know, you're just like, oh my goodness, my mouth, it says some stupid things sometimes. And the scripture talks about our mouth being coming out of the overflow of our hearts. You can feel so condemned. The things I've said, my heart's black, I'm black, it's all disastrous. I'm kind of like, oh, there's a darkness within me and and um, I'm ruined. So you can have an empathy with Isaiah. But his eyes have seen the king, the Lord Almighty. So what happens? Is he destroyed? No, we get to verse six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. It's such a strange picture, isn't it? There's Isaiah. He knows he's not holy and he's in the most holy place. And one of these burning things brings a burning coal, touches him, and he and tells him his sin is gone. He's atoned for. He's he's right. And the strange thing, particularly about this, is that the picture of holiness in the Old Testament is that if you're unclean and you touch something clean or holy, you make it unholy. So. You've been gardening, you've got really grubby hands. Whatever you touch, you make it dirty. And that's the whole picture of holiness in the Old Testament. But here, for Isaiah, 
The holiness goes the other way. The holy thing touches him and he is made holy by it. It's not that he pollutes things. Purity comes to him. And it reminds me so much of Jesus. When Jesus is touched by the unclean woman, he isn't made unclean. His holiness goes out from him to her. And Isaiah's position changes. He hears the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Now, Isaiah, when he first sees God, God's far away. But now he seems to be close enough to God since he's been touched, since he's been restored, since position has changed. He's right there in the presence of God and he can hear what they're talking about. God is saying to the surrounding realm, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And it's similar to a passage in my in um, Kings where Micaiah, one of the prophets there, says, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the multitudes of heaven standing around him on his right and his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this and another that. But finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. There's a heavenly realm out there that we can't see where God and the heavenly beings, he talks to them and what, you know, it has discussions with this council. This, uh, yeah, the, uh, this is the picture that we're getting. And, um, Isaiah can hear this conversation going on. It's amazing. And I wonder whether when Isaiah heard God saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Maybe if he kept quiet, one of the spirits would have said something. They, they, well, I'll go. Or maybe not. Maybe this mission was only one that needed a human. But whatever was going on, God is on a mission and he's inviting, looking for people to join with him on that mission. And Isaiah's position has changed so much that he goes, he leaps forward and says, here I am, send me. He's gone from this position of being a worthless worm who's got everything wrong. Uzziah has died. Things are going wrong. The the nation is going to be taken into exile. And he's, here I am, send me. And it all happens in a moment. And I think that's the amazing thing, isn't it? For us this morning, we can go from a position of feeling useless, hopeless, a failure, a waste of space, When God touches you, he moves your position from that to being someone who can go, here I am, pick me, like the donkey in Shrek. And God says, go and tell the people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous, make their ears dull, close their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So this is weird, isn't it? Like the message that Isaiah has been asked to give is tell people and they're not going to listen. And I don't know about you, but if you've had children or you know any children, then what you see is that when you tell them something or you advise them, they generally like to do the opposite. So if you say last week, one egg is, is enough, they need to, they suddenly need to. They didn't need to before you said it, but now they do. Or if you've got a teenager and you go, oh, it might be a good idea to do a bit of studying for that test. Suddenly they are concreted in their sense that there is never any need to do study. It's as though a paradoxical, of a paradoxical effect of wisdom is to harden the heart. And Isaiah is then, he's told, that's what you're going to do. That's what you've got to do. You've got to go and say to the people, but you're guaranteed that they're not going to listen to you. I don't know about you, but if that were me, I'm hearing this God's heavenly realm, I think I'd say, 
you know what, God, you've got anything else that needs doing? Something a bit more useful? (laughs) There must be something else for me to do than this. But Isaiah is going to just go and tell these people that God is there and they're not going to listen to him. But Isaiah is so humble and he's changed so much that all he says is, for how long, O Lord, for how long am I going to have to do this? And he's told, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remain in the land, it will again be laid waste. Basically forever. You're going to have to say this message for your whole life. The nation is going to be destroyed and actually it's going to carry on going even after your life. This message and hardening of heart is just going to keep on going forever and beyond. But it's not quite forever because the last verse of Isaiah 6 says, But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. So this hardening of hearts is going to carry on. This rejection of God and who he is will carry on from Isaiah when the people get taken out of the land, when they go back a bit, they harden, 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 harden until the seed appears in the land. And Isaiah 11, it's a spoiler alert now, Isaiah 11 says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And Isaiah describes Jesus. And Jesus quotes that passage about hardening of hearts because until Jesus comes and dies on the cross, the human heart just tends towards hardness. And a strange phenomenon is happening in this passage. Do you know the year that King Uzziah died, historians estimate 700 and something BC, is the same year that Rome a little town called Rome was established. Isn't that weird? So in the year that King Uzziah died and it all looked bleak and hopeless, a town was being formed, the result of which would be the death of Jesus, which would result in the potential for salvation of the whole world. That completely blows my mind. It's incredible. One day, even in this end of this passage, there will come one who will change things. So right this morning, my question is, what year do you find yourself in? Like Fee said, are you in a place of thankfulness where you can see lots happening? Or are you in a bit of a bleak year? But whatever year you're in, I believe this morning that God wants to lift your perspective. To lift it, whether it's picturing the daffodil bulb in the ground or picturing the other dimension. I believe he wants to lift your perspective from the hopelessness around you. The hopelessness that you feel towards the future. And see that there is something more going on. There is a God on throne who is, cares about you passionately and knows what's happening to you. And your perspective changes. But I think that can bring about in us that sense of woe to me as we come before a holy God. Woe is me. And I think it's a really good thing for us all to have a bit of that confession So I think it'd be really good for us now to actually think about, um, to say these words together, where the X is, you can put your name in. And let's, we're going to come to communion shortly. And before we do that, it's really good to acknowledge that we get things wrong. 
that we live in the presence of a holy God and yet we often harden our hearts and walk against him. So let's say this together. Woe to me, I am ruined. For I, Marian, am a person of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And even this morning, God says to you, in John it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And God says to each of you this morning, I take the burning coal, I take Jesus. Your sins are atoned for. Your guilt has gone. Though your sins were like scarlet, they are whiter than snow. We are in a new position before God. We are no longer worthless worms. We are people with a hope and a future and a purpose. And within that purpose, God this morning invites us to join with him on his mission. God is on a mission of reconciliation, not just for individuals, but for the whole world. And when we pray, we join not just, we're not just praying by ourselves. We're joining with believers across the world, with angels and archangels. We're recognizing that we have a mighty God who can change things. And we pray and we pour out our hearts before God. And we join where we can seeing God doing things, whether that's bringing a little bit of the holiness of the, of the presence of God into a dark situation. Somebody that you might know who's hurting, bringing something of that tenderness of God. It's extending light into darkness. That's our mission. So as we come into close, I'll just pray for us. Father God, this morning, as we gather in your presence, like Isaiah, would you give us a new perspective? Reveal to us, Lord God, something of your glory. Shake us where our hearts are numb and asleep. Reveal to us yourself on a throne. Reveal to us something of your heavenly kingdom that our hearts would be changed. Lord, we just thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you that you have cleansed and redeemed us and you've made us to be a people, people worthy to come into your presence, a people who can stand in your presence without fear. Lord, we thank you that you don't just leave us there, that you take us on your, your amazing mission of reconciliation, your mission of love to this world. Amen.